aware that we're doing it, but each of us allows some people to influence us and we reject the influence of other people. Many of the people who influence us are not officially known as leaders, but people are still following them. Some of the world's most influential people are singers and actors and athletes. For example, Lady Gaga has almost 30 million followers on Twitter. Justin Bieber has 42 million. At least that's how many he had in July. Now I realize probably about half of you may never have heard of Lady Gaga or Justin Bieber. And neither of them has any official leadership position. But they're influencing millions of people. That makes them leaders. Many Christians are influenced by a particular speaker or writer, sometimes a theologian from the past. And on a smaller scale, many of us are influenced by teachers. Or we can look back to a teacher who made a lasting impression on us. Maybe there's a family member or a friend who we look to as an example. We follow their lead in the way that we think and behave and even in the way we dress and talk sometimes. Everybody's looking for a leader. And this morning we're going to begin looking at a book of the Bible which focuses on this. It deals with the question, Who is worth following? What kind of leader do we need? The book is 1 Samuel. And this is a book about people who are looking for a leader. This is actually the title of a very good book on 1 Samuel. But it captures the theme of the book so well that I've decided to borrow it. Now let me take a moment to give you the context of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel picks up where the book of Judges left off. Now Judges doesn't follow it immediately in the Bible, but 1 Samuel is set in the time of the Judges. And Judges describes the time after the Israelites inherited the land God had promised them. You may remember way back, under the leadership of Moses, God led the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. Then later, under the leadership of Joshua, he led them into Canaan, the promised land. Canaan then became known as Israel. But once they were in, and once Moses and Joshua were dead, the Israelites suffered major leadership problems. The situation in Judges is a bit like the Wild West. Recently, the Lone Ranger has been making a comeback in our cinemas. But the Lone Ranger had it easy compared to what went on in Israel. Every so often, God raised up a judge, a temporary leader to help the people out. But overall, the book of Judges describes a time of religious and moral chaos. It was a dark and dangerous time. 
And it's all summed up in the final sentence of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. There was no leader. There was just anarchy. And that situation is where 1 Samuel begins. If you haven't already turned there, turn there, open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And you'll find that in page 271 or in the large print, page 415. I'm going to read the whole of chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. 
Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So, in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the Lord, to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. This is God's word. This book, as we will see in the weeks to come, is full of big people. Some of them are physically big, like Saul and Goliath. And we'll also meet people who are big in terms of their influence. But this book about big people begins with a small person an apparently insignificant lady. A lady who lives with deep personal pain. Verses 1 to 8 of this passage describe an obscure sufferer. Verse 1 gives us some background on this man, Elkanah. A bit of his family tree. And I would guess the names in verse 1 don't mean anything to you. And they wouldn't have meant anything to the first readers of the book either. Often in scripture, things that are obscure to us were well known to the first readers. But that is not the case here. This family tree is undistinguished. The first readers would have looked at it and said, Elkanah who? This verse tells us Elkanah is a nobody in Israel. Now the story does suggest he had a certain amount of wealth. He could support a big family. And he could make expensive offerings to God. But in terms of his ancestry and his standing, he's a nobody. Verse 2 tells us Elkanah had two wives. It also tells us why he had two. The NIV says one was called Hannah. A better translation is the first was called Hannah. In other words, he started with Hannah, then he added another. And verse 2 gives us the reason why. Hannah had no children. In the ancient world, having children was crucial for survival. In fact, it was so crucial It would drive a man to take a second wife 
if the wife he loved didn't produce any children. In the culture of the time, that was a common accepted practice. And we might ask, yes, but is God okay with it? Well, having more than one wife is never forbidden in the Old Testament. But it's not encouraged either. And in fact, every time it happens in the Old Testament, it turns out badly. And the New Testament does condemn the practice. So this is a case of God slowly leading his people away from what they're used to and into his better way of life. Marriage between one man and one woman. And in fact, this situation illustrates the problems caused by multiple wives. Verse 3 tells us, Elkanah took his family on a kind of pilgrimage every year to a place called Shiloh. Now later, God's temple would be built at Jerusalem. But at this stage, the place of worship is 20 miles north of Jerusalem. Before the summer, we looked together at the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was prophesying about 500 years before Jesus. 1 Samuel is dealing with events about a thousand years before Jesus. Zechariah spoke about rebuilding the temple. 1 Samuel takes place before there ever was a temple. The place of worship at Shiloh was probably a tent with some more solid buildings attached to it. We're told that Elkanah takes his family there every year. And although this is a pilgrimage to worship God, it is misery for Hannah. Look again at verse 4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 5 is difficult to translate, but it should probably read, To Hannah he gave only one portion, because although he loved her, the Lord had closed her womb. At this time, it was a rare thing to be able to eat meat. In fact, for most people, their only chance to eat meat was after they'd offered an animal as a sacrifice. They got to eat part of what they had given to God. So these steaks that Elkanah is rationing out, they're a big deal. They're a rarity. And so they are divided up very carefully. Penina gets loads, lots of portions, because she has all her sons and daughters to feed. But Hannah gets one. Because she has no mouths to feed. The Lord has closed her womb. So the biggest feast of the year is just one more contribution to Hannah's pain. And Elkanah's other wife is a constant source of pain. Verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Year after year, Hannah suffers. 
Hannah's name means grace. But where is God's grace to her? And although there's no doubt her husband loves her, he is not much help. He's not really able to comfort her because he doesn't understand the pain that she's living with. Look at verse 8. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? These verses present us with an ordinary person. An ordinary person living with the kind of quiet heartache many of you live with. For some of you, it is because of a lack of children. For others, it's because the children you do have are on a destructive path. For some of you, it's loneliness. Maybe even loneliness within a marriage. You feel forsaken and abandoned. Whatever it is, you live with the pain of it year after year. And maybe those around you only seem to make it worse. They try to be encouraging and you know that they mean well, but you know too that they don't truly understand. If you're in that situation, then Hannah is here to assure you God understands. You might feel you're one of the little obscure people. But he knows you. He knows all the burdens that you carry. This book about leaders and kings begins with a childless lady. This book will show us God's big plans. And those plans we're learning are for the benefit of little people like Hannah and you. But there is a difficulty here. The text tells us God not only knew about Hannah's pain, it tells us her pain resulted from something God has done. Verse 5 tells us the Lord had closed her womb. And in case we gloss over it the first time, it's repeated in verse 6. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. We're not supposed to miss that. But what are we to make of it? Well, many people would say, I'll keep my distance from a God like that. I want nothing to do with a God like that. But Hannah knows better than that. She knows the God who has taken her into this pain is the only one who can truly help her. If God is that powerful, powerful enough to hold all the cards of her life, then he is the only one to turn to. And Hannah does. She goes to the place of worship and verse 10 says, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, 
Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and do not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Even Eli, the priest, is no help to Hannah. It may be that drunkenness was common at Shiloh at this time. So common, Eli has forgotten what a true worshipper looks like. Or it may simply be that Eli can't see her heart. There is a limit to his insight. But Hannah hasn't come to talk to Eli. She's here to pour out her pain to God. Because she knows he is the one we can trust with the depths of our soul. Sometimes, even in private, we can be so formal and polite in our prayers. We can be guarded. We won't open up to God. But Hannah does. Verse 10 says she prayed to the Lord weeping bitterly. Literally, in bitterness of soul. She isn't just weeping bitterly, she feels bitter. And in God's presence, she offloads everything that's on her heart. All the deep anguish. One writer says, Hannah's prayer completely consumes her. So much so that she's mistaken for a drunkard. Hannah prays the way you pray when you know you have nowhere else to go. When you truly understand God is your only hope. And in contrast to that, how often do you and I pray half-heartedly? Even about things that are overwhelming us. How often, instead of pouring out our souls before God, do we just throw out a vague request to Him so we can get back to worrying? And get back to feeling sorry for ourselves. Hannah is desperate. And she prays like she's desperate. She knows God is her only hope. And she lets him know that she knows. And notice as she prays, she is both humble and at the same time bold. She recognizes God's position. In verse 11, he is the Lord Almighty and she is his servant. Hannah is not here to put God right and give him a talking to. She approaches him with humility. And at the same time, she is incredibly bold. Give me a son, Lord. 
Don't let this misery go on. Hannah prays like this because she knows God's character. She knows he's the God of Psalm 62, for example. Psalm 62 says, Power belongs to you, Lord. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. Hannah knows that God describes himself as the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love and faithfulness. He is powerful, and he is loving and good. So Hannah approaches him with humility and with boldness. And that's the way for us to come. In fact, we have even greater reason to come that way. The New Testament tells us God has shown his power and love supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. It tells us Jesus has entered into our experience. He really does know what you're feeling. And he's able to do something about it. The risen Jesus is now our advocate in heaven. So beside our compassionate and gracious Father stands our sympathetic Savior. And because of that, the book of Hebrews gives us this encouragement. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hannah knows the God who holds all the cards of her life can be trusted with her life. He is good. And you and I have all the more reason to know that. He's the one we can trust with the depths of our soul. I think sometimes we don't pray desperately because we are afraid God won't answer. We worry it'll all come to nothing and we'll feel silly for having poured ourselves out because things will just go on as normal. But when we pray like Hannah prayed, I do not believe things ever go on as normal. That doesn't mean God will always do what we ask but something will change. It might be us who change. Notice the effect of this on Hannah. Verse 18 says that after praying, Hannah went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. It's important to realize this is before she has received any answer to her prayer. The very fact of laying it all before God has made all the difference to her soul. She's no longer downcast. First Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Aside from any answer he might give, the God who cares for us is more than able to take our anxiety and give us peace even in the midst of our pain. And that is reason enough for us to pour out our soul to him. 
Now, as it happens, God not only changes Hannah's state of mind, he does also grant her request. Verse 20 tells us she eventually has a son. She calls him Samuel. And the last section of the story shows us a serious response to God's blessing. When Hannah asked God for a son, she also promised to give him back to the Lord. You may have noticed back in verse 11, she said no razor will ever be used on his head. That seems a bizarre thing to say. Especially for a lady in such pain to say. What does her son's hairstyle have to do with anything? Well, it seems that she is making what's called a Nazarite vow. In the Old Testament, people sometimes let their hair grow to show they were being set apart for God for a certain period. And then they would shave their hair. But in this case, Hannah says her son, if she has one, will be given to God for all the days of his life. That was her promise. And when God gives her a son, that is what she does. She keeps him until he's weaned. And in her culture, that means he's three or four years old. Then verse 24 says this. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the Lord, to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Before we notice anything else in these verses, we have to deal with the fact that this lady has just given away her four-year-old son. From now on, she'll see him once a year. What are we to make of that? Well, we need to see that despite all the lessons this situation has for us, it is also a unique situation. Samuel has a unique role to play in God's big plan. So the events of his life are unique. They are not a pattern for us to follow. If you have a four-year-old, don't try to give them away. What Hannah does is not a pattern for us to follow. However, there is a principle here that does have application for us. The principle is this. When God gives us something, it is not primarily for us. It's for his kingdom. And we are to view it that way. We're to view it as dedicated for his use. So, for example, if you pray for a spouse or a job, or if you pray for healing or for a better living situation, and if God gives you what you ask for, he has given it for the good of his kingdom. Your marriage 
is not just for your own comfort and fulfillment. Neither is your work, or your health, or your house. Hannah understood that. So she was not selfish with the son God gave her. Now if God has given you children, I understand very well you cannot convert your children. But what do you want for them? Most of all, is your deepest desire for them to know and serve God? Or is it for them to have a high-powered, successful career? Do you want most of all for them to have treasure in heaven? Or for them to have financial security here on earth? Which is it? Really? I knew a pastor once who loved to hear about missionary work. But when his teenage daughter talked about going to Africa to do missionary work, he blew his top. He liked to pray for Africa. He wasn't so keen on his own daughter going there. We cannot convert our children. And we mustn't try and pressure them into making commitments to God. But God forgive us if we are a hindrance to their conversion or their service. God forgive us if we teach them by our example that other things matter more. When God gives us gifts, they are for his kingdom. So when we ask him for things, let's ask him with that in mind. If you are asking him for a spouse, is it for you? To fulfill you? Or is it so you can serve God alongside your spouse? If God gives you a marriage... Will you give it back to him? Will you dedicate it to him? If he gives you that new home that you'd like, will you make it a place of hospitality? Or will you make it a castle that you hide away in? If he gives you health, will you use it for him? Hannah got what she prayed for. But how many women in Israel were praying the same prayer and didn't get a child? How many of those women were just as godly as Hannah? But they had to live the rest of their lives with a thorn in the flesh like Peninnah, provoking them And mocking them year after year. How many? We mustn't misinterpret God's answer to Hannah's prayer. 
It's not here as a promise to us. We will not always get what we pray for. God won't always give us what we want. But he will give us what we need. I mentioned earlier, Hannah's child has a special part to play in God's plan. Samuel will grow up to lead Israel out of chaos and into God's blessing. Samuel will one day anoint King David. And David's kingdom will be Israel's golden age. God's gift to Hannah was the gift all Israel needed. His answer to her prayer brought blessing to everyone. So the point here is not pray like Hannah and you'll get what you want. The point is actually you may not get what you want. But God will provide what you need. There may have been many childless women in Israel. Many of them may have prayed like Hannah. And many of them may have stayed childless. But God gave them what they needed. Samuel was for them too. To lead them into God's blessing. And roughly a thousand years later, God answered the prayer of another childless woman in Israel. Her name was Elizabeth. And God gave Elizabeth a unique son. His name was John the Baptist. John was sent to prepare the way for God's ultimate king, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's answer to the prayers of all of us. God may not give you what you want. But in his son Jesus Christ, he has given you what you need. Jesus is the substitute who died in your place for your sin. And, as we heard earlier, he is now your advocate in heaven. He knows all about human pain. He knows your pain. Come to him. Pour out your soul to him. He will give you the mercy and grace that you need. We're going to praise him as we sing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And then, bless the Lord, O my soul.